and welcome to this Expert Insights CD. I'm Donna Hansen from Prime Solutions Training and Consulting. Our Expert Insights CD series is designed to give human resources and learning and development professionals access to the latest trends, ideas, philosophies and approaches that impact on how organisations manage, retain, engage and recruit staff. We know that HR and learning and development roles are all-encompassing and that it's often hard to find the time to step outside your world and explore what's happening in other organisations. Prime's Expert Insights CDs are designed to provide you with concise information on topics relevant to you on a regular basis in a format that maximises your time and keeps you up to date with current trends in the industry. In this Expert Insights CD, we speak with Leanne Faraday-Brash. Leanne is an organisational psychologist, speaker, coach and facilitator with extensive experience in leadership development, culture, change and workplace justice. While Leanne consults in a range of areas, the common thread is the emphasis on improving organisational effectiveness and workplace climate for all staff to increase performance and promote organisational health and wellbeing. Leanne aims to help managers improve their organisation's performance, profit and public image by working on the tricky people stuff. And in today's CD, we're going to be talking with Leanne about vulture cultures, how to stop them ravaging your organisation's performance, people, profit and public image. Welcome, Leanne. Thanks very much for having me, Donna. Leanne, why don't you tell our listeners how you came to be a specialist in organisational development and in particular toxic cultures? Sure, happy to do that. Uh, After being a starving student for a number of years, I decided that any job after that was a good job and I found myself in a personnel agency. And without really much training and coaching, I just went ahead and did what I did to try to place people in jobs that best suited them so that the organisation won and the agency won. And I must have done a reasonable job of it because they told me that I had in fact won placement awards three months in a row and that they were very, very happy with me, which was great. And then a few months after that, my partner and I found out we were expecting our first baby. Wow. And it was very soon after I I told the organisation I was pregnant that they told me there'd been a really big downturn in the market and they got very quiet and they needed to let me go. Wow. Yes, not what I was expecting, but I sort of stored that away and thought, I'm sure that there's something wrong with that but I'll go away and have a healthy baby and I'll worry about that later. And then many years later I came to work, having registered as a psychologist in the meantime, with ANZ Bank. And I went on maternity leave again and I walked back into a firestorm. ANZ at the time was facing the single biggest case of gender discrimination in this country until David Jones and Christy Fraser-Kirk in 2010. And they decided they never wanted that to happen again. And I put my hand up saying I wanted a nice, big, juicy project to work on. And they said, why don't you go out and hang around with our lawyers for a while and get some understanding of this EEO caper, this Equal Employment Opportunity piece, and then come back and deliver a solution to the business. And the rest, as they say, is history. I now spend most of my time as an organisational psychologist in organisational psych, organisational development, which is something obviously your human resources audience will understand and do a lot of work in, and the area that I call workplace justice, which is around harassment, discrimination, unfair dismissals, bullying and occupational violence. Wow, what a very interesting journey there, Leanne. So what exactly is a vulture culture? Well, I've defined a vulture culture basically as an organisation in which 
any form of counterproductive workplace behaviour, including unethical or unlawful behaviour, actually occurs. And not only occurs, but is in some way incentivised or enabled or promoted or ignored or condoned mm -hmm. by management. Mm -hmm. So in most organisations, we're normal fallible human beings, bad stuff can happen. But at the point at which that bad stuff starts to happen in an organisation and there are no negative consequences for, for that bad stuff, I think it actually has to say something about the culture and what is or isn't acceptable in a more global sense. Uh, so I've consistently found that there are probably up to four species of vulture culture that I have witnessed uh, and assessed in my consulting travels over many years and I devote sections to each of these in the book. One of them of course is workplace bullying and that was highlighted very much uh, in the Australian consciousness in the last couple of years by the tragic death of young Brodie Panlock in Victoria um, after systemic and pervasive bullying by her colleagues and her manager at the cafe. And uh, that was one of, really one of the reasons that made me decide I actually have to write this book. The second species of vulture culture is the whole raft of forms of discrimination. And I don't just mean unlawful discrimination on the basis of race or religion or gender orientation, but anything that might also take into account nepotism and favouritism, where certain individuals are treated better than others for reasons that have absolutely nothing to do with their ability to do the job. And I put all of those forms of discrimination and harassment together as one other indicator of a vulture culture. The other two are unethical and corrupt behaviour, which I've mentioned, and the fourth one, which often surprises people, is incompetent leadership. Because those leaders who are actually asleep at the wheel and allowing bad things to happen and refusing to tackle them or hoping that they'll wake up the next morning and it'll all be okay are allowing that stuff to happen on their watch and causing great pain for themselves and ultimately for their organisation. So I guess there's a lot of organisations where um, stuff like this goes on but maybe something's happening to somebody and they don't want to speak up. Um, and I'm trying to think of some extreme over-the-top sort of commercialised examples and the first thing that springs to mind is the TV show The Office yes. and all of the um, antics that go on and and how I guess that in, encompasses everything to do with a vulture culture. Would I be correct in assuming that? Absolutely. Walking case study. So, uh, in, in effect, uh, what we don't want to see is uh, is organisations with um, fairly obvious people in charge like David Brent, the, uh, the, the manager of that particular business. So, um, I mean, that's really good and that's the extreme, but sometimes I guess, uh, and, and I'm sure we're going to talk more about it, um, people will be a little less obvious in their approach. And I certainly think, um, and I don't know what your thoughts are, but the, um, the influx of technology can also um, uh, increase the instance of these sort of things happening, you know, email sort of things. And I know we've, we've seen some harassment around emails and, and from a personal perspective we've seen kids harassed with social media, etc. I'm, I'm imagining those sort of things also happen in a business perspective. Absolutely. And there are tragically so many different ways in which people can cause other people pain uh, and there are lots of different ways in which we communicate and in a modern world we communicate via email and we communicate via social media so when you consider that harassment is unwelcome attention that offends intimidates or humiliates somebody any of those means of communication be, can be used in order to perpetrate harassment and because bullying is defined as repeated unreasonable behavior 
that creates a risk to people's health and safety, that can certainly be done with aggressive emails. That can be done with a menacing tone. That can be done by insinuating that if someone doesn't toe the line and do what it is they're meant to do, that they're basically putting their job under threat. So someone can communicate that verbally, someone can communicate that in an email, uh, and certainly uh, cyberbullying uh, is not just relevant in the school environment but also in the work environment and I have been involved in, in investigations into horrendous allegations that involve cyberbullying between people who work together. So wow. any of these technologies can be used as a way to simply communicate the expectations of a job and to show appreciation to someone at work for a job well done or they can be used to create feelings of unsafety, isolation and intimidation mm. um, if they're used by um, malicious bullies or by people who just have a really clumsy style and feel that the end justifies the means. I think that's an interesting point to make there, Leanne, and, and I'm sure that a lot of these, like we're talking about the impact on, on people as far as human resources and learning and development professionals are concerned, the primary interest is in the people, but um, you know, not only would their um, self-worth, um, value and mental uh, health be impacted, but I'm imagining that there's also financial consequences to organisations who, you know, uh, let stuff just slide or choose to ignore things or um, perhaps don't take action until it's too late. What, what sort of things have you seen in that regard? There are organisations I know, and of course I won't name them, who might spend up to a million and a half dollars a year measuring engagement. So we've worked out in a modern world that the extent to which our people are engaged says a lot about their willingness to solve problems, to bust down doors, to find ways around issues, to have the presence of mind to want to innovate. Mm -hmm. And yet they're not going to be doing that if their basic needs for safety and security are not being met. So while we pride ourselves as organisations on our ability to engage our people, to want to foster discretionary effort, to have them be absorbed in problems without any awareness of time passing, which is one of the ways we define engagement in a practical sense. If people are being bullied or harassed or sexually harassed, if they are applying for opportunities that they know they are the best candidates for and being passed over because they're not a member of the club or they're not the right gender or they're not the right gender orientation, then that's of course going to diminish their morale and their motivation and they're going to be keeping their eye on the scoreboard and not on the ball. Mm. And I'm guessing that uh, you know uh, people that end up leaving organisations like that could potentially have some form of legal recourse if they feel that there's been some discrimination against them based on any of those uh, sort of scenarios you presented. Absolutely. And often when you asked before about the cost financially to an mm. organisation, there can be a profound financial cost to the individual who feels they have no choice whatsoever but to leave the organisation. Uh, and what that means in terms of the disruption and the dislocation to their lives from having to leave a job they might have liked or people they liked because they were working for a bully and couldn't see any way out of it. But for the organisation itself, there's this huge impost that can be overlooked by an organisation in terms of time theft and disengagement because people are upset and disenchanted or don't want to give their heart and soul to an organisation where such bad things are happening to them day to day. Um, to say nothing of, and you've just mentioned that, the legal implications for an organisation for someone who leaves and then decides to invoke legal action and what that means not only in terms of 
costs, legal costs, but also the risk to reputation and mm. public image, which is something a lot of organisations these days absolutely hold sacred and is one of the reasons why sometimes they let bad things continue to happen, because they don't want the publicity. Mm-hmm. And I guess, too, uh, you know, it's about being proactive to these sort of things rather than reactive after the, after the fact. And often by understanding, you know, what things look like uh, can make it easier for us to identify when something's coming towards us. So, Leanne, what are the signs of a vulture culture? Well, they're many and varied, uh, but one of the ways in which you can determine that things aren't travelling well is where you've got high grievance activity and people are accessing conflict resolution procedures because relationships at work have broken down. Uh, a poor safety record can indicate that there have been a number of near misses or incidents or accidents because people are distracted at work and bad things can therefore happen. Uh, a climate of fear is something that I'm always very attuned to, particularly the fear for people to make mistakes. If they're working for very directive, autocratic, even bullying managers, uh, they can experience a lot of stress and anxiety in not wanting to show initiative. Uh, they learn helplessness and need to seek approval for doing things with a very punitive or strong boss such that they're scared to act on their own. So fear of making mistakes and uh, the lack of display of initiative can sometimes indicate a climate of fear. Uh, high turnover, uh, even in a bad economy, can often be a sign that people are unhappy and that the really good ones who know that they can fare well elsewhere are likely to pick up their bat and ball and go home uh, because they don't feel they want to stay in such an environment. Uh, time theft, where people feel sufficiently disengaged or uh, angry about what's going on at work that they can protest in any number of ways, including looking busy or not even looking busy and really squandering, if you like, the organisation's salaries mm. uh, and not getting enough done or compromising on quality because the care factor is low uh, and just any other form of bad behaviour, particularly unlawful behaviour, uh, either corrupt behaviour or sexually harassing behaviour, discriminatory behaviour that is justified, rewarded, promoted or ignored. Um, anytime somebody uses the word dysfunctional or toxic, um, my ears prick up because that's usually a very obvious sign that they know people are not travelling well and some very poor stuff is happening that wouldn't make a lot of sense otherwise. And I'm guessing that sometimes it might not be organisational wide, but it could well be within teams. Um, do you often find that, you know, that sometimes it's within a team rather than the organisation as a whole? Or can, I assume it can be a combination of both? It can be. Sometimes you've got, depending on the size of the organisation, an organisational culture that enables all of these things to happen either across the organisation because they're very pervasive norms, such as ruthless competitiveness mm. within the organisation, which can almost become one of the informal embedded values of the organisation. It's dog-eat-dog dog around here. We've got to elbow other people out of the way. It's survival of the fittest. Only the top few of us are going to get through and be well rewarded for what we do. And that can breed some very competitive, uh, nasty and aggressive and passive-aggressive sort of behaviour. But sometimes you've got an organisation with quite a reasonable culture and a strong sense of values, but you've got particular teams or divisions that are characterised by different 
behaviours. And that's usually because either the leaders are modelling that behaviour themselves or because individuals underneath those leaders might be selling a lot and bringing a lot of money into the organisation or are the favourite um, sons and daughters, in inverted commas, of the leaders and therefore the end justifies the means. And over time, those behaviours become embedded and become a flavour of the way we do things around here in this division. And as you've identified, sometimes it's really one team that stands out as markedly different and damaged from other teams around them who look in on that team and give them a very bad reputation and shake their heads in dismay and say, I can't believe the organisation is allowing this to happen. There's no way this would happen in my team. We just, you know, have decided that, that there's something going on over there and none of our people would ever go there and we keep a wide berth. So I've, uh, I've seen that sort of thing within organisations where somebody's been there and it's particularly relevant if somebody's been there for a period of time and, and they've sort of embedded themselves in that organisation, be it from a longevity of employment or as you said by performance based things and, and people just sort of step aside from them and go well that's, that's just the way they are. So you're suggesting it's perhaps time to maybe... Um, take a bit of a microscope to that and, and have a real look as to, to what it is and the, the influence and the damage that it might have in the organisation? Yes, I think it's really important and then there's some new research coming out that I find really fascinating in terms of neuroscience and neuroplasticity that suggests that, that what invokes fight flight in the individual is often fear-based. And what we can do is often fear the consequences of taking steps to fix something and worrying that we won't do it well versus really contemplating the risks to the organisation of doing nothing. And so it's sometimes with some degree of embarrassment, even shame, that human resources professionals or senior line managers come to me and say, I guess you're probably wondering how we let it get that bad. But they just kind of got used to that person and that's just the way they are. And we made allowances for them or we steered clear of them or we promoted them up and out of the way, which you hear yeah. as well. Um, or we just took all the people off them so that they're not a people manager anymore and yet they still have extraordinary reach in the organisation and might still be wreaking havoc, but they don't have 20 reports, direct or indirect. Uh, and it might be that they're the top salesperson. It may be that the clients love them. Mm. It may be that they um, have some degree of celebrity about them that means that there's kudos for the organisation in hiring them and keeping them in the team. And as we said before, there's sometimes such um, almost pathological fear about negative fallout in the, new, in the media that organisations will hold on to this individual and they're basically, you know, Bluebeard's ghost in the closet and they're hoping the person's reputation and the destruction they're causing never sees the light of day. So Leanne, that's some great insights on the signs of, the, of a vulture culture and, and some information. Have you got some more specific examples? I know you've got a couple of um, situations that I thought you might like to share with us. Yes. There are many that stand out, and I certainly talked about a number of them, de-identified, of course, in the book. But two of them that I think made me the most sad, if you like, and I thought I'd almost seen and heard it all after 20 years or so, was uh, one situation which I would say in, in some defence of this organisation was probably very typical for that era, um, but in share trading and stockbroking 20 years ago, they are what I would refer to um, colloquially as a sort of Hugo Boss suit wearing three mobile phone carrying coke snorting living on the edge testosterone laden <laughs> hairy chested macho kind of environment um, and while we can sort of have a laugh about that from the outside mm. 
some of the women in those environments at that time, and there were a number of organisations that were pinged for that big time, uh, were objectified and sexually harassed mercilessly. Uh, and the ones who were really tough and resilient sort of survived it, and others were very, very damaged. And I saw that happen in that era uh, way too much. Um, and probably the David Jones case sort of almost seemed to come close to that as a modern-day version of mm. a situation where a woman was allegedly objectified, given unwelcome attention of a sexual nature, by people who were more senior, or someone in this case who was more senior, and therefore the power imbalance, the fear about what it might mean for one's job if one didn't comply, uh, and just even back then seemed to be so noxious and so soul-destroying often for women who would sit there tearfully in front of me and say, I thought I was a competent, capable, resilient person. I can't believe over the last weeks, months, years, this has worn me down, and I just feel like I'm a shadow of the person I used to be. Um, and so what happens in those situations psychologically is that we have that crisis of confidence. It's what's called in therapy the shattering of assumptions that occurs for someone where they had an image of themselves or a picture of what their life was going to be like and then they wake up one day and realise that their life as they know it is completely different and that they've been absolutely soul destroyed and their esteem is rock bottom because of what they've had to endure and all the self-doubt that starts to creep in for that person wondering have in some way I brought this on myself. So it's almost like the battered partners syndrome where some of these victims start second guessing themselves and don't realise because it's not been validated for them just what terrible behaviour they've had to endure. Um, so when I see people who are really quite broken from the circumstances they've been in at work, it, uh, it, it's terribly sad and you just want to do everything you can to get them back on track and to help their organisation realise they have a responsibility to make sure that they try to help that person heal if they can and the person wants to stay, but certainly to arrest that culture so that that doesn't happen to others in the organisation. Well, I know in, in what we've discussed so far, clearly there are times where organisations will minimise the impact, whether it's actually consciously or unconsciously, by justification or whatever. But uh, do you see in some organisations the impression that um, those who aren't uh, the subject of these sorts of attention or impact the bullying etc um, are looking down on the circumstances and sort of saying well I'm wondering if they're overreacting and and that's sort of been a mechanism for them to maybe not take action because because it's not happening to us it things always seem worse when it's happening to us but when it's happening to somebody else do you think some organizations have the um, the, the view of oh, it's just somebody overreacting you know you should just laugh it off Yes, you get the whole gamut of reactions from the third party or the, or the person that we might call the bystander for our purposes. Mm, that's a good uh, term. Sometimes the bystander will actually shake their head, roll their eyes and will sit in a one-on-one -on -one interview with me in a culture audit or a health and wellbeing assessment and say, I actually cannot believe that people in this organisation that I look up to sit there and allow this stuff to happen. Now, at one level, they might understand why it happens because the person who's abusing the sales admin team is the top sales account executive for the organisation and they would be down a couple of million dollars a year if not for this person. But it often means that the bystander has so much less respect for executive management for allowing this to happen and putting profit, if you like, above people. But there will be other situations, particularly if the bystander, him or herself, is not the target 
of the bullying or the harassment uh, and is otherwise a pretty thick-skinned and um, mm. laid-back, resilient kind of person, they just won't necessarily relate to the pain and the anguish of the victim, in inverted commas. So they will often think, well, for goodness sake, we've all had hard times in life, uh, and I'm sure I was bullied at school and I survived it, so why don't you just suck it up? And for the person who's not coping well, or for the person who's being subjected to horrible attention, when the bystander is not actually present and doesn't understand the full force of what's happening to them, they feel even less validated because there isn't anyone else around them saying, this is wrong and I would recommend you go to see someone about it because this shouldn't be happening to you. So that can compound, if you like, their grief and their isolation because other people around them don't understand what the big deal is. And that can be because those individuals themselves are very resilient or they're a part of a culture where that sort of behaviour is acceptable. So Leanne, a great conversation here, but I guess from an external perspective, what does the outside world see when an organisation's got the vulture culture? It may be a crisis that gets picked up in the media, um, where perhaps what's exposed is a failure to act or to live up to a duty of care. Uh, that's often the most explosive one and the one they have to react to the most strongly, and we see uh, examples of that every day in elite sport mm -hmm. where things have been alleged to occur on people's watch where CEOs took their eye off the ball uh, or people will do whatever it is to win and regardless of the consequences including the pressure on other people to perform or to get out. Um, unsafe work practices that can result in significant injuries that may mean organisations face um, court action for negligence and even imprisonment of directors is, is another obvious one. Uh, organisations will acquire a good bad or indifferent uh, reputation amongst recruiting firms. So if organisations have a bad reputation amongst recruiters and they're reluctant to send candidates there, uh, that will obviously um, tell something about the organisation. Another important tell is mass defection of talented staff. Often mm. the best ones will leave and the ones who are not sure they're going to fare well elsewhere will stay, but will stay and effectively become prisoners of the organisation. Um, so they've emotionally left but physically hung around and that comes obviously at a big cost to the organisation that's helped create that. Um, if there's the presence of sociopathic or narcissistic behaviour of executives, it leaves a trail of discussion, uh, destruction I should say, um, people who um, get paid huge amounts of money even when the organisation is not doing well and leaves people wondering about the fairness of those sorts of things. Um, they can of often be uh, a clue about what's going on. Uh, whistleblower activity on fraud or alleged corruption can be a big sign, of course. And, of course, the most extreme and obvious ones are the public scandals like um, the News of the World, Enron mm. organisations who've put inferior product on the market and um, calculated, as has been the case over the last 20, 30 years in some cases, that they're better off just paying out the lawsuits than actually recalling the product. Mm. Mm. These are extreme... Um, cases of where the moral compass is absolutely not pointing north. Um, but there are softer and more indirect measures of that, such as turnover and people complaining on social media about their organisations or, or people with blotchy careers because they've gone to lots of organisations and it hasn't worked out and they've felt the best thing for their own psychological health is to leave. So Leanne, can having a vulture culture impact on an organisation's ability to recruit and retain talented staff? I know we've talked about talent leaving, but um, tell us more. Well, there's no doubt that these days a lot of uh, high-achieving people 
in the workforce or entering the workforce are very discerning and very strategic about where they want to go to work. Uh, a lot of the focus in our human resources audience will know that so much time and energy is spent on trying to attract and retain talent. Uh, and in, a, in an era of shortage of knowledge workers, it's never been more important to try to get the best of the best to come into your organisation and for them to do the best job they can because they're very engaged and to keep them as long as we're able to keep them. They're basically the three things that allow us to maximise the value from people at work. Whether or not we're able to get good people in, whether or not we're able to create the environment that allows them to do their very best work, and whether or not even at a time where many of the people coming to work in organisations will reinvent their careers many, many times over, how can we help them stay longer than perhaps they had planned to? So if we've got a fantastic young Gen Y with great qualifications, lots of enthusiasm, really open learner, and they were really only planning to stay for two years, if we can get them to stay for four years because they're getting so much from where they're working and they're accumulating resume capital all the while because they're being well supported by line management and human resources, getting quality professional development, uh, experienced people in their organisation bending over backwards to teach them and help them achieve their aspirations. If they then decide they want to stay four years rather than the two, that's a big win. But if people come into an organisation where the climate is inhospitable, where they don't believe they're being recruited on merit, where they're denied opportunities because they're not part of a club, or even worse still, they become the subject of unwelcome or hostile attention, then those people, if they feel they have choices to go elsewhere, will go and take a whole lot of grumbles with them and talk down our organisation once they've gone elsewhere. Leanne, we talked a little before about the profitability perspective and how a vulture culture can impact on profitability. Um, let's just go into that a little bit more. Okay. There are a whole host of reasons why an organisation will lose money effectively, although it's not always so easy to measure, because people are working in an inhospitable culture. If we don't recruit the best people into jobs, then the individuals who are successful for all the wrong reasons can underperform in those jobs and they may not necessarily make the best decisions and they may not maximise the organisation's profit. If people aren't performing at their best and there's a commensurate decline in quality or people are not doing as much as they could do in the amount of time they're spending at work, that obviously input impacts throughputs and outputs and again indirectly that's going to impact profit. Uh, if people are taking action against their organisation, if people are going out on stress, if they're taking long-term leave which the organisation may have to pay them, then that's impacting the bottom line because money is going out of the business on all the wrong reasons. Um, if you look at the statistics, only 18% of Australians are evaluated as actually loving their work. The international average is 27%. So we're actually faring worse than many other countries, including some of the developing nations, on people willing to give their heart and soul to the organisation. And so therefore there is an impact on innovation, which is often the competitive advantage of an organisation and is the one thing that can enable an organisation within the space of a few years to double or triple its profits. So Leanne, I guess if we look into the future, I'm guessing this sort of thing is going to become a little bigger, you know, with the having gone through the global financial crisis, all of that sort of thing. What's your take on that? I think it's 
more important than ever before that organisations look after their people. From an ethical point of view, they have an absolute obligation to ensure that their people come to work and go home in one piece, both physically and psychologically. I, I believe that passionately. If they also don't live up to their obligation to help people maximise their potential at work uh, or create lack of safety for people at work, even in this very insecure environment where people may grudgingly stay for a while longer until things improve, organisations will see mass defections once the economy starts to improve. The other thing is we know in this country we have a shortage of knowledge workers that no immigration policy is going to address in the foreseeable future. So we have to be able to recruit and retain really good people and we have to make it more hospitable for people of both genders, of every generation to stay in the workplace longer in order to help do the jobs that knowledge workers have to do. So if we don't uh, arrest those things. If we don't look after our people now, we will have the shell of an organisation once the economy improves. And there's no doubt that people are a lot more insecure at the moment and they're fearful of losing their jobs. But once they're in a position whereby they can make a choice to go, they will go. Uh, and if they're in a position to take action after they've left, they will take retrospective action with all the impact that has on profitability, productivity and corporate image. So Leanne, we've talked about the signs, but what can human resources or learning and development professionals do to protect or prevent their organisations from becoming a vulture culture? Is there a strategy they can implement or a process that will firstly reduce the likelihood of it occurring or cut it off at the past, so to speak, or repair the culture? Yes, I think there are a few things that, that can be done, and, and I guess where I would start is say that human resources professionals probably need to do everything reasonable ourselves to hone our skills, to become very influential and persuasive individuals so that we have a seat at the table and those senior people will listen to us when we know that bad behaviour has to be called whether or not bad behaviour has to be consequenced. If there is any risk of human resources with all good intention being irrelevant or invisible in the organisation, we can't do the work we need to do given that we are the co-custodians of culture for the organisation. So we've got to be really good at what we do and we have to make sure that people take us seriously and will hear the message. I think that's the first thing. The second thing I think we need to do is adopt what I refer to colloquially as the pool fence methodology. Mm -hmm. Now councils will put in place the requirement for people with a swimming pool on their properties to install a pool fence mm -hmm. to make it harder for people to fall in, particularly children, to fall in and drown. Uh -huh. But that's not to say that people won't take preventative strategies as well by teaching children to swim uh -huh. and for parents learning CPR so that in the event of a potential tragedy, they might know what they need to do in order to safeguard against something terrible happening. And I think the pool fence methodology is an appropriate parallel for us. We need to build a pool fence around the organisation to reduce the risk, and I see that as good, robust, clear and transparent organisational policies mm -hmm. in HR so that people know what it is they are and aren't allowed to do. I think we need to teach our staff to swim, as it were, and that's about training, uh, and training that really is, tests people's attitudes and allows them to ask the hard questions and to have their issues heard and to be able to talk that through with them so that they can really own a change of behaviour. And I think as an organisation we need to learn good CPR. So we've got to have good risk management and crisis management practices in place and we have to be prepared to do the hard stuff to discipline when necessary and appropriate. 
And if that means cutting the tangled parachute and dismissing individuals who are perpetrating all the things we don't stand for, then I think organisations need to do so because they will sometimes decide not to because they're risk-averse and yet they won't contemplate the risks of allowing that person to stay on. The other thing I think we need to do is to always be talking to people about the potential consequences of failing to act on bad behaviour and for HR not to do so simply in right-brained ethical, moral and interpersonal terms but to do so in hardcore commercial and monetary terms as well. So highlighting to people in the business who might have that very commercial mindset what we stand to gain or lose financially and in terms of shareholder return and triple bottom line and reputation with shareholders if we continue to allow bad things to happen on our watch. Executives in their short-sightedness can sometimes exaggerate the negative consequences of dismissing the bad egg and simultaneously underestimate the impact of doing nothing about bad behaviour that carries all those risks with it. At the end of the day, we get the culture we deserve and we get the behaviour we're prepared to tolerate. Well, Leanne, uh, our time's quickly coming to an end. What a great insight into an area that can obviously have a huge impact both externally and internally on an organisation. Just to sort of wrap things up, what do you think are the top three things you would recommend HR and L&D professionals do right now? The first thing I think we need to do is develop our business acumen so that we're talking the language of the business and we're able to translate into really direct dollars and cents terms what are the costs of doing it poorly and what we stand to gain as an organisation by doing it well. We don't want anyone to dismiss us as being the welfareies of the organisation. Yep. So we have to develop our business now and talk the language of those commercial focused people in the business. The second thing I believe we need to do is focus all our L&D budget or as much of it as possible on ethical, empathic and supportive leadership development. I don't think we should be spending our budget on compliance. I think that's the minimum required standard. Whatever we can do to develop empathic, emotionally intelligent leaders who are prepared to model the right behaviour and tackle the bad behaviour is the best investment an organisation can make in culture. And finally, I think we have to make sure we don't downplay the risks of taking action or losing a case mm. and underestimating the risk of doing nothing. Staff depend on us at the end of the day to keep them safe and to create an environment in which they can do their best work. If they're able to do their best work, everybody wins. We have to be prepared to fight for good culture and HR professionals are absolutely pivotal in doing that using their influence and persuasive skills. I know that um, some of our listeners may want to get in contact with you and I know first of all you mentioned that you have a book. Tell us what the book's called and where people can get that from. Well, not surprisingly, I think they won't be uh, shocked to learn that the book is called Vulture Cultures, How to Stop Them Ravaging Your People, Performance, Profit and Public Image. They can get that off the Brash Consulting website or they can get that from Australian Academic Press, the publishers of the book. Terrific. And if they want to get in touch with you to talk a bit more about some of the things that you do, all the different services you offer, how's the best way to do that? Probably the best way is to get in touch with me and reach out on the website. It's www.brashconsulting, one word, .com.au, and there is a, a contact us. I can't say I will always write back on the same day, but I will always write back, and it would be lovely to hear from your listeners. Leanne, thanks so very much for your time today and your, your thoughts on the, the vulture culture and how to stop them ravaging your organisation's performance, people, profit and public image. Thank you for joining us for this Expert Insights CD. For more information on Prime Solutions training and consulting and our services, visit our website 
the three W's, Prime Solutions, with an S at the end, .net.au. Until next time, this is Donna Hansen helping you work smarter and not harder with technology. Bye for now.